Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Twelve to fifteen year olds are one step closer to getting vaccinated. So there's many different benefits, not even including the fact that they can go out with their friends if they're all immunized. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. COVID tests are supposed to be free, so why are people being charged? We have been speaking with providers who say, we just don't have the infrastructure to collect insurance information and bill insurance companies. Plus, a look at the police budget and how funds will be spent, and a proposed plan aims to reduce air pollution from portside businesses. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. The Food and Drug Administration approved usage of the Pfizer vaccine on children ages 12 to 15, expanding the eligibility of vaccine recipients. Now its final approval is up to the CDC's Vaccine Advisory Committee, who will hold a meeting tomorrow to review usage of that shot for this new age group. The development comes as a welcome sign for parents and guardians concerned about the effects of COVID-19 on their children. Joining me to discuss the latest on this expanded eligibility is Dr. John Bradley, Director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Rady Children's Hospital. Dr. Bradley, welcome. Thank you so much. So when will vaccinations for this newly expanded age group be available in San Diego County, you think? Tomorrow. As you pointed out, the FDA authorized use of vaccine. It's not a full licensure. That will come later, just like for the adult vaccine. But after the FDA authorizes something, they just say it's safe and effective. Then it's up to another group to recommend its use. And that's where the CDC and their advisory committee on immunization practices comes into play. And they're meeting tomorrow afternoon, East Coast time, morning Pacific time. So we should get the the vote of the committee to recommend that the CDC recommend this vaccine for 12 to 15 year olds by early afternoon in San Diego. As a pediatric infectious disease specialist, are you hopeful at this news? I'm much better than hopeful. I'm really happy. As you know, kids tend to do okay with coronavirus. They don't get hospitalized at the same rates. And thank goodness we've had not one single death of a child in San Diego since the beginning of the pandemic. But kids can spread it. And as you know, probably half the kids who who get the infection and can spread it have no symptoms. 
which of course just completely took us all by surprise. So in order to get COVID under control in San Diego County and the rest of the state and the United States, we need enough people immunized so that if virus is introduced from somewhere else, it doesn't continue to spread. That's the herd immunity concept. And of course, the other very important goal is that if kids don't get infected, they can't spread it to grandparents and other members of the family who who are more at risk of serious disease and hospitalization. So there's many different benefits, not even including the fact that they can go out with their friends if they're all immunized. So what did the clinical trials of the Pfizer vaccine indicate about its effect on children? Pfizer, for this particular FDA authorization, included a subset of children between 12 and 16 years of age in their vaccine trials. So they have collected data on a thousand kids that age group who got a vaccine and compared them with a thousand kids who just got saltwater injections, placebo. And then these kids went out in the community and then you look to see if the vaccine protected these adolescents. And they also, of course, have full information on safety because they're, they're checking uh, uh, all of the standard blood tests, uh, symptoms of disease, all of that uh, as part of a routine post-immunization safety check. And the adolescents were just as protected as adults, maybe even more of of the thousand kids that got the vaccine, there were no cases of COVID. In the thousand kids that did not get the vaccine, there were 16 cases of COVID. And you touched on this, but so what are the possible side effects for this age group as a result of getting this vaccine then? So most of the side effects, as, as you know, for adults will happen either immediately within the first couple of days. And of course, the same cautions for kids we're, we're sharing as cautions for adults. So if, you, if you're highly reactive to all kinds of shots and you may be allergic to one of the components of the vaccine, we really don't want you to get this vaccine without talking to your, to your healthcare provider. Uh, and then long-term side effects generally pop up over the first uh, six to eight weeks where you have persisting muscle fatigue. Uh, you, just, you have some reaction to the vaccine and you don't get over it. We are going to continue to look at the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, uh, risk that problem. But most of those kids, as you probably know, will get their disease within four to eight weeks of getting the actual infection. And there doesn't appear to be any kid with MISC following the vaccine. So we think that the benefits of the vaccine in preventing MISC are far greater than any potential for the vaccine to cause that side effect. Now, the expansion of this age group is a huge step towards the nation's overall efforts to inoculate against the virus. At the same time, this news comes as vaccination rates are slowing across the nation. Is this a sign that we're getting closer to a majority of the population being vaccinated? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a reflection that there's probably a, a, a group of people who aren't particularly interested in getting vaccinated for, for whatever reason, and we just need to connect with them more. I don't know that we've reached herd immunity. And as a matter of fact, in in parts of the United States where there are no longer mask mandates and people are all getting together, 
the virus is spreading, which is proof that there is no herd immunity yet. And with the new B117 virus that's now predominant in California, uh, in San Diego, that spreads more effectively. So the original prediction that if we had 70% of the people immune, either from vaccine or the infection, that the virus wouldn't be able to spread with this new, more contagious mutant, that number is probably higher, 75 to 80%. And we're clearly not there, but we need to be. So so I think the slowdown has many, many reasons. And I think there are some really well-meaning people who are just cautious. And now that there's 100 million doses of these mRNA vaccines that are out there and safety data on these, I don't think people need to be worried anymore. I've been speaking with Dr. John Bradley, Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Rady Children's Hospital. Dr. Bradley, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Very much appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Aside from expanded eligibility and vaccinating children like you just heard about, public health experts say free COVID-19 testing is key to monitoring the pandemic going forward. So why are some people still paying hundreds of dollars for tests? iNews Source investigative reporter Jill Castellano has been looking into this and joins me now. Jill, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jade. So who is supposed to get the bill for COVID tests if they are supposed to be free to the public? Yeah, in many cases, the insurance companies are paying for these tests. Under the Federal CARES Act, that's the way it's supposed to work in many cases. So you go to a testing site, they collect your insurance information, and your insurance company is required to cover the full cost of that test, leaving it free to you, to the public. And if you don't have insurance, there are many testing sites operated by the government or that work with the government to offer free tests to those individuals as well. Hmm. So then why are people paying for COVID tests? Yeah, this got me really interested in the topic when I started hearing about the hundreds of dollars people were spending considering all the free sites out there. Well, in a lot of cases, it's a matter of convenience, or in other words, people feel they don't have many other options and they have to pay for a test. So some sites, the free government sites, might take days to get your test results back to you. That's not good enough for some people if they've got to meet up with a family member as soon as possible, if they have to get back to work because they had a COVID exposure and they really need to earn that money, then they might end up paying for a COVID test. So why are these providers not billing insurance companies? Yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting story. So in a lot of these cases, we have been speaking with providers who say, we're not, we're, we just don't have the infrastructure to collect insurance information and bill insurance companies because we would need to set up a billing department or something like that. Um, so they go ahead and just collect your money up front and then let you go and get reimbursed by your insurance company later. One of the issues with that is, well, that might mean that you're out $300, $400 and you need to go and try to get that money back eventually. So is what they're doing legal? Yeah, there's no problem with this under the CARES Act. It's totally fine if you are not in network with any insurance companies. As a provider, you don't have to bill insurance companies. Um, But as I mentioned, that can be a 
big hurdle for the customers who may not understand that and may just assume that these companies are going to collect their insurance information. It can be a real shock when they get a big bill. Yeah, and you've mentioned this a bit, but what kind of bills are people who get the test getting stuck with? I've seen bills up to $400 in San Diego County and kind of all in between $0 and $400, depending on the type of test, how fast they needed that test result back. The reason why I've been able to gather this level of information is iNewsource actually commissioned a survey of local testing providers, and we had more than 50 participate in that survey. So we were able to gather a lot of information about these prices. Are people having any luck getting reimbursed for COVID testing charges by their insurance provider? Yes, some are having a lot of luck because it is required ultimately in many cases that insurance pay those costs. So if you are able to navigate the system and go submit that bill to your insurance company, it very likely will be covered. In your story, you mentioned the COVID clinic. How many test providers are billing customers up front like that one? Well, in the survey that we did, we found 13 providers that were not accepting insurance in any cases, no matter what. And adding on top of that, there were another 10 providers that were only accepting insurance in some cases. And those can be especially tricky for the public to understand. What cases are they? Well, sometimes it can be some tests are covered by insurance, but other tests are not. And how might this billing practice impact whether or not someone goes through the trouble of getting tested? Yeah, the experts that I spoke with are pretty concerned about these high prices because it could discourage people from seeking testing if you're facing a really big cost. It could be a sticker shock is what they call it. Um, Or if you actually do get tested and the bill is higher than you expect, you may not get tested in the future. And that could be a real problem for the pandemic moving forward. If we have fewer people getting tested, it's hard to monitor infection levels. It's hard to understand the state of COVID-19 in the community. What do you recommend someone do if they are trying to get a test and they're being charged up front? I would recommend having some agency and knowing your rights. So you can always ask people why you're being charged. You can ask, would you mind trying to bill my insurance for me so I don't have to pay this cost? If the answer is no, you should make sure you have a receipt. You should make sure you have documentation of your visit. And you should definitely go and submit that claim to your insurance company Even if it's a headache, it's probably worth it because it likely will be covered. And where can people go to get tested and avoid this kind of hassle? The county-run sites and the state-run sites are really good options that are free. If those aren't going to get you the results fast enough, there are pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens. There are federally qualified health centers. If you start looking around, you'll find many good options. I've been speaking with iNewsource investigative reporter Jill Castellano. Jill, thank you. Thanks so much. You can read more about COVID test prices at iNewsource.org. iNewsource is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program. Shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. California has a new attorney general, Rob Bonta. 
He was picked by Governor Newsom for the job and confirmed by the legislature after Javier Becerra moved on to a cabinet position in the Biden administration. Some things to know about Bonta. Before becoming attorney general, he served in the state assembly representing Oakland. And Bonta is a progressive and has championed criminal justice reforms like ending cash bail. The 48-year-old Yale grad is also the first Filipino-American to serve as the state's attorney general. The California Report's host, Saul Gonzalez, talked to Bonta about some of the issues he'll face in his new job and what he hopes to accomplish. Being the people's attorney and working to right historic wrongs and fight injustice and help people. And it takes a lot of forms, but the general frame that I have is helping uh, and fighting for the little guy. And uh, that includes things like making sure that multinational corporations are uh, not hurting families or that folks in our criminal justice system aren't being treated unfairly um, and are given a second chance when they deserve one. And in this moment, making sure that our community, that the API community that's under a full is supported and that perpetrators of hate are held accountable and victims are assisted to heal. So if those are the big ideals you stand for, what specific policy steps do you want to take in your job as California's Attorney General? It'll include efforts and initiatives and um, uh, deliberate and intentional acts to uh, address hate through the, the different levers that the California Attorney General has. It will include actions against um, polluters who are hurting communities that live at the intersection of, of pollution and poverty. It will include implementing EB-1506, a bill that I co-authored that provides that the Attorney General shall conduct outside thorough investigations of officer-involved shootings that result in the death of an unarmed Californian. And it will take the form of other efforts to protect consumers and generally making sure that folks are following the law. So that's what I'm setting out to do. That's what I've told people I'm going to do. And that's what I expect to be reviewed based on. As you just brought up, one big issue you're going to be confronting as attorney general is officer-involved shootings. Under California legislation known as AB 1506, your office has the responsibility to investigate police shootings that result in the death of civilians. So what are you going to be doing to make sure that more lives can be saved when things go very wrong between police officers and members of the public? Right now, I think we're really in in a place where in too many places, in too many ways, for too many reasons, trust between our communities and law enforcement has been lost. And you can't have trust without accountability. And it's important that we have a system of, of accountability when transgressions have been made and, and the law has been violated. And so it's my intent to stand up an officer-involved shooting division in the Attorney General's office pursuant to AB 1506 that will be a model for the rest of the nation that will do it right and do it well and be thorough um, and impartial and um, fair and comprehensive in every investigation that we're involved with. So California, um, the, you know, the, the person being investigated, uh, the individuals, the, you know, the family members who are mourning because they've lost a loved one, all have faith and trust in that system that we stand up. That was California Attorney General Rob Bonta speaking with the California Report's host, Saul Gonzalez.
It's going to take time. That's the word from San Diego city leaders as they consider the task of shifting funding away from the police department to social services and other public safety programs. Some city council members are calling for a comprehensive analysis of how the police budget could be changed and funding priorities shifted. There's not enough time for that to take place before next year's city budget is due, although council members say they could take some initial steps now. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter David Garrick. David, welcome. Thanks for having me. Who is calling for this comprehensive analysis? Uh, Four council members, at least. Uh, You know, some council members didn't really comment, but they seem to sort of tacitly agree. Uh, but Monica Montgomery Stepp, who's head of the city council's public safety committee, Sean Elo Rivera, uh, and Joe LaCava were sort of the loudest voices at a, at a budget hearing recently. And what would an analysis like that include? Well, um, it's, it's interesting sometimes how things work out. The head of the police labor union, Jack Schaefer, is sort of given the most detailed description we've ever heard, but we still haven't heard exactly what it would be, but it would be an analysis of what functions the police do right now would be better handled by social service agencies, homeless providers, maybe people who specialize in mental illness, because I think sort of the general argument of defund the police, which is a very complicated term that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but the general idea is that there are certain things that the police are not as good at as other people would be, especially social service providers, and that we should shift some of the police's duties to those groups. And is that what the head of the police union is saying, Jack Schaefer, that perhaps they should consider that? Um, you know, I think Jack's point was you shouldn't do anything knee-jerk. You shouldn't do anything without thinking it through. His argument was you need to make a thorough study before you do something maybe to gain political points or to cave into political pressure. You need to treat this like an academic exercise, like something that you really have analyzed in every possible way. And yet another caveat that even though you think you may end up spending less, some of the things that are maybe wrong with policing may cost you more. You may have to spend more money for training. You may have to spend more money on something called neighborhood policing, where you, you put police into some of the low income areas and have them sort of build relationships with community leaders. That's a way to reduce crime, but it doesn't cost less. It actually costs more. Now, besides these three or four council members, does shifting funds away from the police have uh, like overall support from the city council? You know, it's interesting to ask that. They've had five new members starting in December. Um, last spring, when this sort of became a national issue, the council was unified in not wanting to do anything aggressive, like just eliminate their police department, as some cities considered. Uh, and it sort of takes small incremental steps, sort of like the ones they're talking about now. With these five new members who all came in in December, you know, the debate really hasn't come up until this past few days. Um, And it appears that you have folks who want to take an aggressive look at potentially doing that. And the other folks didn't say they were against it, but they haven't really taken a a vocal position. So I guess the answer is I'm not certain. You know, as you mentioned, activists started advocating for defunding some police budgets about a year ago. What has San Diego done in that time? Anything? They've made some changes in police procedures with the carotid restraint, and they've uh, created an office of race and equity to study issues that uh, sort of involve racial disparities, which would include police. 
So those are sort of the, the main issues. Um, they've increased funding for gang prevention, but there are sort of stuff that's on, on the edges as opposed to in the center, you would argue. And that's uh, one thing that the independent budget analyst for the city noted uh, this past week, that uh, a majority of council members in their uh, budget requests asked the mayor to explore shifting some police funding to other areas. And the mayor really, to Mayor Todd Gloria, really didn't do that. Uh, maybe he's planning to do it soon, but in the initial budget he laid out about two weeks ago, there really isn't any suggestion of shifting money that goes to the police department now to be spent elsewhere. Mayor Gloria has been supported by police unions in the past in his political career. Is that a factor in how swiftly any reforms will move? I think a critic could say that it, that it would be. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess we'll have to see how, how it plays out. Certainly, labor unions have a lot of power. But this is also an issue that has so much sunshine on it that, I mean, it, it's it's one where you can't have a union, you know, give you a, a bunch of money in a dark closet and then no one notices what you do. Whatever Todd Gloria does on this issue, everyone will see what happened. And you think he probably has to do what, what the community supports. As you say, there's still a push by advocates like Council Member Monica Montgomery Stepp to make some small changes in the budget this year along the lines of perhaps shifting some funding. What changes is she talking about? You know, there haven't been specifics, and I would say Sean Elo Rivera, her colleague, is maybe even more the leader of that charge. They, I think they all agree the big changes can't come now because we haven't studied them thoroughly enough, but let's try to do a few little things. And one uh, example that Sean Elo Rivera came up with was there's a, a new effort of outreach with homelessness by a nonprofit downtown uh, that he thinks is maybe a model for how to take police out of the process, or at least lessen their role in the process, and have a nonprofit group take sort of a more central role. Again, you just thought that was one example of something that could become a model. So I'm guessing that we'll see as the budget is debated over the next four weeks, maybe some proposals like that. So it will be a small chunk of of police work, not like the overarching one you might see in a year or two after they thoroughly study it. And what is the process? What involved in doing a comprehensive analysis? Would the council have to approve a committee? How would that proceed? Yeah, you're, you're ahead of the curve there. I, I don't know, and I haven't heard any specific discussions. If I were to compare it to the way the city typically handles things, they would probably hire an outside consultant to study what other cities have done, uh, look at for best practices across the nation and maybe the world, and then analyze the police budget, which is almost $600 million a year, and see maybe what parts of it they even have any sort of leeway with, because most of it's labor costs. And you know, unless you want to go and fire a slew of police officers, uh, you know, it's hard to shift labor costs aggressively very quickly. So what should we be looking for? What are advocates of police uh, budget reform going to be looking for as the budget process comes to an end here in June? I think they're going to look for some small changes that would be more on, along the lines of defunding the police. And I think the big moment will be when the city announces, OK, we are going to study it. Here's how we're going to study it. Here's the goals of this study. Um, and and it, so that maybe that people can have confidence that the council is putting their money where their mouth is, that they truly legitimately are going to study this and consider changes, as opposed to maybe saying the right things to calm down the, the, the protesters and the p- folks who are frustrated and sort of waiting for it to die down. I believe the council genuinely wants to make change, but a critic could say maybe they're just saying the right things, waiting for this to go away and re- replaced by some other issue. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter David Garrick. David, thank you. Thanks for your time.
The Port of San Diego considers a plan today that aims to reduce the amount of pollution portside businesses put in the air. The draft policy, however, isn't getting a warm reception from community advocates. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson has details. Sylvia Calzada says it was scary when her doctor first diagnosed her asthma seven years ago. When your uh, airways shut down and then you can't breathe, that's very difficult and uh, you get a lot of anxiety. Calzada has lived in National City for more than two decades and her family roots there run deep. My great-grandmother lived here. My grandmother currently lives here. Calzada remembers living by paint shops and seeing trucks rumbling through her neighborhood. In various of our areas where we lived at, there was a lot of trucks passing by and we could smell that diesel, you know, popping out and uh, that affects our, our, our bodies. And then just here in Paradise Creek, there were other trucks passing by and that smoke is out there. And the trucks are easy to find even today. They roll in and out of the port's marine facility just about a half mile or so from Calzada's Paradise Creek home. Calzada works with other community members to push the port to consider the impact on their neighbors. And back in February, the port ordered staff to develop something called Maritime Clean Air Strategy. The Port Commission Chair Michael Zuchett says he wanted more than just a spirited discussion in a boardroom. What's what's the plan? How, how are we going to do this? How are we going to transition uh, in a way that maintains all this economic activity, maintains the good, but limits or in some cases eliminates the negative impacts on the surrounding communities with respect to clean air. Commissioners directed staff to put those ideas into writing. They asked for a policy that had specific measurable goals with clean air targets and the mechanisms to enforce compliance. Port Vice President Jason Giffen says the challenge lies in balancing two objectives. A focus effort, which is primarily the next generation of how we're going to address clean air and being a good neighbor while at the same time driving forward the economy of the port business at the Port of San Diego. It is essentially going to be a policy document that will set the foundation in writing in terms of what will be the port's initiatives and strategies moving forward. But the resulting draft document got a cool reception from community advocates. The Environmental Health Coalition's Danny Serrano says the staff recommendation falls short of what the port commissioners ask for publicly. He says there's a lot of good language about environmental justice and clean air in the document, but... When you get into the details of the MCAS goals and objectives, you know, the meats of the document, uh, it is clear that it is really inadequate and will not not sufficiently alter or change the business-as-usual environment at the port... Serrano says the port plan needs to be specific about goals, timelines, and how the port will get there. And his organization is pushing for aggressive goals. Serrano says the port needs to electrify its on-terminal operations and expand that off-terminal. Develop a clean trucks program by the end of this year, 2021, with a clear and phased plan and strategies to transition 30% Uh, zero emission vehicles by 2023, and again, 100% by 2030. And the port seems receptive. Commissioner Michael Zuchett says the public concerns have been heard, and the port is planning another round of public input. I think this is an example of a public agency not just putting a document out for comment, 
uh, by the public and then doing what they want anyway. If this is an example of an agency putting a document out, we got a lot of public comment. We're going to be responsive to, the, uh, to that comment. The port is expected to compile the public comments and come back to the commissioners for approval sometime this summer. Zuket says a working plan represents a huge change in port operations moving forward. Joining me is KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, welcome. Thank you. What is it about the draft maritime clean air strategy that environmental health advocates don't like? Well, I think what they don't like in that uh, program, that suggestion, that policy is the fact that it doesn't have all the specifics that they were looking for. Uh, they were really pushing hard to get the port to commit to timetables, to commit to um, uh, goals that were pretty aggressive, you know, even more aggressive uh, than state goals for electrification of some of these uh, port vehicles. Uh, the port moves around a lot of uh, cargo on its facilities, and right now, uh, most of those uh, cargo moving trucks are are diesel powered. So that creates diesel pollution. The port moves a lot of those goods in and out of those same marine facilities on diesel trucks. And I think what environmental activists were looking at was uh, something that was a little bit more concrete than the, than the first draft plan that the port will be looking at um, at its meeting on Tuesday. You know, we've heard for the last several years about the goal of electrifying the terminal at the Port of San Diego and the port truck electrification project. How far along have they gotten to that goal? Well, they've uh, brought in some demonstration projects. They've brought in some vehicles to see, you know, what's feasible. And I think that's part of their strategy. What they're hoping is, is because they're sort of out in front on this uh, among uh, the early adopters uh, that they're hoping to get uh, tap into some grant money that will make it a little bit more affordable for them to do. Um, it's the customers of the port. I think the moving the moving the freight or the items out of the port facilities, which seems to be the big hurdle right now. Uh, can you get uh, trucks that can that are electric that can drive 220 miles or 300 miles or 500 miles? Uh, like a diesel truck can, can you kind of make that same cargo hauling capacity uh, on an electric powered truck as you can on a diesel truck? And I don't think that the industry is quite there just yet. But again, those timetables are uh, what the environmental advocates were were hoping for, uh, really aggressive steps to reaching those zero emission vehicle goals. And when these longer range uh, electric powered uh, big hauler trucks come online, how much is that going to cost? Yeah, that's a very good question. Right now, from what I can tell, an electric truck is much more expensive than its diesel counterpart. And I think part of that is due to the fact that they're not mass marketed, they're not mass made just yet. So you don't get the advantage of an economy of scale. Um, so many of those uh, electric trucks are, are, are developed, uh, you know, individually, not on an assembly line. I think once the industry and the demand for that product goes up uh, and the industry responds by, by developing uh, manufacturing facilities that are more efficient, uh, then the price will come down. But again, the port, its goal has been to kind of ease that financial burden where they can 
by being on the cutting edge and um, uh, trying to land grants to help cover some of those costs. Now, both the port officials you spoke with in your report stress the need to balance environmental concerns with strong economic activity at the port. Is there a concern that reducing pollution at the port could hurt business? Oh, sure. I think that's uh, always been uh, always been an issue for the port. You know, they're in the in the business of uh, making the tidelands in San Diego a resource for the community of San Diego, and that resource is kind of realized when there's a lot of economic activity uh, on those tidelands. And and uh, in the past, I think there hasn't been the corresponding concern about potential impacts of all that economic activity. So now I think the scale is balancing a little bit and you're starting to see um, these two goals kind of move forward in conjunction with each other. And I think that's the message that uh, Port Commission Chair Michael Zuquette and uh, Jason uh, Giffen were trying to give uh, uh, when they talked to us about this maritime uh, strategic plan. So today, the Port Commission looks at this maritime clear air strategy draft policy. I'm wondering, how can members of the public express their concerns or ideas about the port's clean air strategy? The port is going to take some of the suggestions that they hear at their meeting, and they're going to offer another chance for the public to comment on this plan. You can probably uh, go to their port webpage and find the different ways that you can add comment if that's something that you're interested in doing. But they want to gather more public comments so that when they gather later in the summer, they'll have a better plan and hopefully a plan that that everyone agrees is a, is a good step moving forward. And I've been speaking with KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, thank you. My pleasure. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. It's been more than 40 years since refugees from the end of the Vietnam War made their new homes in America. Many stayed here in San Diego and in other parts of California, but others were sent across the country in what was the largest resettlement effort in American history. A new novel explores what that was like for a family of so-called boat people adjusting to a new and strange life in Louisiana. It's a story with a special significance now during Asian Pacific Heritage Month and at a time when people of Asian heritage are experiencing new outbursts of racism. Joining me is Eric Nguyen. He's the author of Things We Lost to the Water. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Do you have a family connection to that experience of people leaving Vietnam to resettle in America? My parents left Vietnam after the war around 1978, I would say, and they left by boat. They eventually came to a refugee camp in Indonesia, and eventually they found their way to the U.S. At first, they settled in California, but because of family, friends, they moved their way to Washington, D.C. How much of their story is part of your novel? Partly, I never really knew what my parents' story was. They were really quiet about their refugee experience while I was growing up. They didn't want to talk about their past. So actually writing this novel was was my way to explore 
that bigger Vietnamese refugee experience and what they could have possibly been through. You uh, describe in the novel how difficult that journey was as people left in these overcrowded boats. Did your parents ever share their story with you? I mean, like through conversations, like I got bits and pieces of it, but they just told me that it was difficult to get here to America and that they wanted their children to have a better future than they had, to not have to ever think about escaping by boat like they did. What were the things, as described in the title of your book, that were lost to the water? I think for Vietnamese refugees, it was definitely the country, their lives that they had. Like in my novel, we had a professor as the husband and a dutiful housewife in Saigon who had a very successful household. But all of that is kind of lost after the war. And when they come to America, they basically have to start all over again. The main character takes a job at a soda cannon factory, which would be something that she never would have thought of as a housewife in a middle-class family back in Vietnam. So that is partly what they lost. But I think also for my characters, it's also this idea of what it means to be Vietnamese is lost to them, especially for the younger characters. And you see that as they're trying to negotiate what it means to be Vietnamese living in America. So I think it's twofold a loss of a home, but also loss of something more intangible like culture, like how do you belong to a culture that you didn't really grow up in. Why did you decide to use water as a metaphor for what this family has to give up along the way to embracing a new life? Water is how they left their country. So water, in a way, meant safety. But at the same time, water is very dangerous. Many people died on their way trying to escape Vietnam by sea. So I I wanted to explore the ways that water could be like something that could save you, something that's necessary, but also something that is also very dangerous as we see in the book. You describe in detail how strange the whole world of American culture was to this family, down to the itchy fabric of Tuan's new shirt, or how strange the English language sounds. Now, these are not your memories. So how did you learn that? I think I picked and choose what I did learn from my parents about what their experience was like coming to America, being in America, not knowing the language. So I kind of took from that, and I kind of tried to step into their shoes as being like a foreigner. Like I have traveled to like different countries and have been a foreigner there. So I took that emotion of being on the outside, of not knowing what to do in a different place where you weren't born, where you don't know much about, including the language. And I tried to make my characters experience that. You know, there's a considerable amount of anger expressed toward Americans by the characters in your book, Things We Lost to the Water, at a time when most Americans thought that Vietnamese refugees should be grateful to be accepted into this country. I'm wondering, did your parents' generation often have to hide those feelings, maybe their true feelings? On the one hand, they were grateful to be here, to have escaped. But on the other hand, they knew that they were being treated differently and that if they stayed in Vietnam, they wouldn't have all these obstacles of being of a different race, of 
from the majority of having to learn a whole new language. Like growing up, I remember a refrain my parents, my mother in particular said was, if only we were still in Vietnam, if only we didn't leave. But of course, that's also mixed with the feeling that if you didn't leave, something bad would have happened to you anyways. So it's definitely like a mixed feeling within, I guess, my family at least, that I saw of this gratefulness, but also this anger of having to basically start all over again to learn everything all over again and also being treated so differently. America's acceptance of refugees has been a hotly debated topic for several years now. The previous administration basically stopped our refugee program. Now the Biden administration has started it up again. Considering that refugee status was at best bittersweet for Vietnam War era people, what do you think about this latest refugee controversy? I think what we're seeing now in the current era is just a repetition of that, maybe a little bit different based on different races, maybe based on different religion. But I think like stories like mine, stories of refugees will always be resonant, always have a place because as a country, we don't really know what to do with refugees. I mean, we're a country of immigrants, of people who come here freely, but we're not sure of what to do with people who are fleeing a country who we don't see ourselves in. And I think that has played out within the last couple of years, especially like in the last administration. This is, as I said, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And of course, we're living through a time when hate crimes against Asian Americans have increased. Do you think much of the Asian American experience is still left untold for most Americans? I feel especially Asian Americans in the South are kind of ignored in the bigger narrative, especially like I felt after the attacks in Atlanta in March, I felt like that kind of gave a spotlight of Asian Americans living in the South. And my book, I, I kind of hope that to give a little spotlight that Asian Americans and our stories belong in the South, that we're part of the cultural heritage, the history of the South, and that to ignore the Asian Americans in the South would be to ignore the fuller picture of what it is to be American. I've been speaking with Eric Nguyen. His new book, Things We Lost to the Water, will be featured in a virtual event by Warwick's Books tomorrow at 4 p.m. And Eric, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me.